You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. This is the latest edition in what we're calling Weekend Conversations. Each week, I'll take a deeper dive into a recent article or interview that I shared during the week, usually a Friday forward. And joining me to do this is Mick, my co-producer on the Elevate podcast. Hello, Mick. Hey, how's it going, Bob? It's good. All right, so this week we're actually going to be talking about yesterday's Friday Forward, uh, which was titled Final Frontier. And I know you've got some uh, expert questions as, as usual to kick us off. I do. So let's start with the genesis of this week's post, which is an article from Juno DeMello called The Final Frontier for Helicopter Parents. <laughs> so what? it's probably obvious to people who are familiar with your work, but how did you find this article and what caught your eye about it? Probably algorithms. Uh, it was served up to me in, in Apple News, but when you talk about good titles, it, it caught my uh, attention right away. So it was... It was good clickbait, and then it delivered. And and you know, I have a I have a sophomore in college. I have another one going next year. So this is something that I had started to become uh, familiar with. But um, what she talks about in this in this article is the formation of these uh, groups, whether they're WhatsApp or Facebook groups, targeted towards uh, parents of college kids. And uh, look, you know, college used to be this kind of understood maybe firewall or demarcation point where parents stopped parenting. But that that was broken years ago when parents started calling calling college coaches and showing up for job interviews and bothering the students, teachers like that was just I I don't think you could have found one person when I went to college whose parents would have had any involvement across that sort of blood barrier line. Um, so that's been going on for a while, but, but these groups that have, you know, formed in the last, uh, several years, uh, the author just kind of took a, a look into them. I would say there are two type of people in these, in these groups. They're the, the voyeurs who enjoy the, the comedic aspect of it. And then they're the people contributing. I think some of her examples was parents, you know, setting up playdates, getting roommates, worried about getting into class, worried about the food, putting a noodle between the bed. So, didn't fall off the side. My wife actually, uh, there's one of these types of groups that she follows for pure comedic value. And I remember uh, she said this one because it's almost unbelievable. But but two years ago, this mom posted, I think it was for Penn, saying that, like, you know, my super smart, very attractive, athletic son is going to be a freshman at Penn. And I'm trying to help him find a roommate and hear the things he's looking for and the qualities and everything. <laughs> this other, this large group of parents. And it was, you know, great. One of the person responded and they said, your son sounds, you know, obviously very smart and capable. Maybe you would want to let him figure out his, his own roommate. <laughs> so I think he could do this on himself. So I, I was pretty amazed when I read this article, which I hadn't seen before you wrote about it in the post. I'm in a bit of a valley where I am not a parent, but it's also been a little while since I was in college and was directly parented. Yes, the valley of ignorance you are in. Happy, blissful ignorance. Yeah, and so the the theme, though, that really seems to be the case is that there's a 
meaningful social pressure that parents feel to be super helpful to their kids. Like they see other parents going above and beyond to make life easier for their kids. They're asking for all of these recommendations and these helpful tips for their kids in these groups. And the article, actually, the writer spoke to a couple of parents who directly say that they feel guilty, that they are not participating in their kids' lives in that same way. Have you seen this type of pressure, either feeling it yourself as a parent or seeing people in your circle talk about feeling that pressure? And how do you respond to that? I I have not felt that pressure because it goes against all of my values. I'm sure other people feel it like they're in any group that is digitized to their social pressure. But I've always had a different sort of take on, you know, what's a good parent or a great parent. And, And there's two lenses to look at that, the short term lens and the long term lens. And I just tend to look at that at the long term lens, which means doing a lot of the opposite things that could make things easier or better or more helpful in the short term, because I think you lack all of the muscle to, to then make those decisions in the long term. Like, look, the point of being a leader, having a family business is, you know, to create successors. <laughs> um, you know, the point of parenting once was to create the next generation and, and, you know, push them out into the world. You know, now it seems like people are trying to make sure they're holding on to their job as parent and, you know, professor uh, tenure uh, emeritus, um, which is not the goal. So most of these things go directly against a lot of what I, I am not a perfect parent, but, but values and behaviors. And it, it does not bother me at all for my kids to have to figure things out, struggle, get it wrong. Otherwise, because I, I think either you're going to do it now or you're going to do it later. And, and, you know, the stakes are lower now. And, or if you're not going to break this cycle of violence, then you're going to become a helicopter grandparent, which is a whole different problem. So something that I think is really interesting about how technology changes people's behavior on this front in particular, when you listen to people talk about what life was like growing up in the 80s or even in the 90s before things like cell phones and especially smartphones, a lot of times if a kid was out of sight of their parents, there was just no real way to keep tabs on them. And you would hear story about, about kids who grew up in the 80s who would just go ride their bike with their friends and they'd leave the house at nine o'clock. Yeah, sunset to sundown, yeah. Yeah, like be home for dinner. And in the current state that we're in where you can always reach someone and therefore if you can't reach them, it becomes a source of potential panic. How do you think that that technological accessibility and connection between parents and their kids is feeding this helicopter behavior. I mean, it's a huge problem. And, and look, a lot of people have life 360 or whatever, you know, on their kids for, for safety or otherwise, but you know, you should not call them out on that. You should not tell like kids need some autonomy. They need to lie to their parents. They need to say they're going one place and go to another. They need to pass notes in class. I mean, I wouldn't have wanted my parents to read the notes that <laughs> I wrote in class. Like you need some autonomy and and discovery and to figure this stuff out. And if someone is going to constantly box you in or put training wheels or, or inherently imply that they do not trust you, you're just not going to develop those skills and you're not going to kind of become a, an adult. And I think the people that both track their kids and let them know they're tracking their kids and ask them why they weren't. So I, I, they don't understand how much distrust they're creating uh, and problems they're creating. You know, it also just creates this world where 
because news and everything is more prevalent, it feels more unsafe, even though it's not. You know, we talked in a Friday Forward uh, a few months ago about the the missing kids on the on the milk box, right? It turns out like that did more damage than harm. Uh, over, I think, a 10-year period, they might have figured out that maybe one kid was actually discovered uh, through the milk bottle program. But the kids watching missing kids on the milk bottle every morning as they made cereal at breakfast and parents thinking that the world wasn't safe and and not letting their kids go outside and a whole generation that went from sort of, you know, free range to farmhouse uh, <laughs> parenting, uh, that the, the damage was a hundredfold the benefit. So, yeah, I think like everything, I think technology uh, these days plays a, a part in this. It, it, you know, you can see other parents commenting like it's it's very much uh, FOMO, um, but but the outcomes aren't good, right? And, and I know we'll talk about the sort of parenting style thing, I'm sure, in a second. But I'm about outcomes. And our kids today are, are you know, they're, they're not becoming adults. Um, you know, they're living at home at record rates. They're depressed. They're anxious. They're nervous. And this phenomenon plays a big part in it. So I think if you don't like the outcome of something or you have a poor outcome, you, you should think about changing the behavior. And I think this article just shows... Um, the need, you know, the only way to not get involved with that is just not get on those things in the first place. <laughs> it's like, so like, take it off your phone. Just don't, just don't do it if you don't trust yourself to not get involved or be impacted by it. Yeah, because the the instinct is pretty undeniable. And there's, you talk about this as like a leadership analogy that leaders have to sometimes watch the people that they lead fail in order yeah. to help them learn. And the same is also true for parents. But, you know, I'm not a parent, but I can imagine that there are a few things in life harder than watching your child fail and letting them fail so that they can learn. And the thing about the the college transition is that that was formerly such a natural <laughs> inflection point in someone's yeah. life where, you know, sometimes parents would like put their kids on a plane to their school and they wouldn't hear from them again, other than occasional phone calls or like even letters. I mean, my, my dad told me stories <laughs> right. about writing letters to his parents from school. We're, right. We're depriving our kids of that. I always said that my kids will never have the experience I had going abroad where I had a, a your rail pass, a let's go Europe, you know, some cashier's checks. And I had to figure out what I was going to stay every day and how to get there. And there was, you know, you could go to dial up and all that, but they just won't have that. And, you know, it's really unfortunate. I mean, let's just think of something as simple as registering for classes, right? My daughter, very A-type, like we don't get, like she calls us and tells, here's how it works. Well, you get this day and so you don't get the class you want. First of all, that's not the end of the world by any objective means, but then you also have to figure out, well, you need to be there to register the system or this is how it works. So she she tells us how it all works. I have no idea how the class registration system works, but she's figured it out. Just like she'll have to figure out other systems with incentives and rewards and behaviors in life. It's not for me to get involved with it. And if she misses out on a class, then you realize you have to speak to the teacher or do something or do it earlier. Like I always say like cause and effect is a really important function in life, like behavior and consequences. And I don't, I don't necessarily, consequences aren't negative. It's just certain actions and behavior have consequences. And there's an organic relationship between those. And if you interfere with the electrical current between those, then people don't learn how they work on their own. 
Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Yeah, and so that natural break-off point of a kid going to college, that's been completely changed by technology, obviously, and by these WhatsApp groups and these Facebook groups. And so then we're in a point, and this is a good time to bridge to the broader social impact of this, because a lot of these parents and kids, as you've talked about, as the piece talks about, they don't have that breaking point, even as they get out of college and go into the real world. And so I want to zoom out a bit to the key concept that you talk about in the post, which is this concept called permissive and overfunctioning parenting or PO parenting. So can you describe that approach? Yeah, parenting has really changed. And I've done a lot of research on this and reading on this, and it's really changed over the last 20 years. And not that there weren't problems. 20 years ago or, you know, with people, maybe very little emotional attachment and over independence. And yeah, just on Saturday, we'll see a, you know, Sunday morning. I mean, there's probably some problems with some of that, but uh, again, the, the job of a parent to sort of make themselves not useful and to move from maybe a coach to a general manager, to a mentor kind of, uh, in the, he talks about it uh, in the heart the book, the hard thing about hard things um, you know, he talks about kind of as a leader, again, that role, you move from kind of, again, coach to up to manager, GM, and it requires different things and different level of communication. I, I just think at 18 years old, you should you should be moving in towards the, the mentor role and, and not the manager role. But 
So the main thing that has changed, I think I call it P&O, are these two concepts of, of parenting today. One is the permissive, um, and that is the no accountability. And I think the hallmark of this, and God bless every teacher uh, out there, because I couldn't do it. Um, and some of us have seen the graphs, because you know, when I was growing up, if my teacher said I was misbehaving or doing something wrong, like I was in a lot of trouble, right? Um, there was a three-legged stool and it was the teacher and the parents kind of against the student. Now, uh, and I have friends who are teacher and I have a friend I've been trying to get him to write a book because I mean, the letters that they have from parents are like not to be believed over a 20 year period. It's like the kids never did anything wrong or they didn't show up to class, but why can't they get an A? Um, it, it just shows the, the depths of the problem. So now it's the teacher and the student, uh, sorry, it's the student and the parent allied against the teacher and that's impossible, right? So when the kid doesn't do something right or they try to hold them accountable, whatever, the teacher's kind of looking, the, the parent's looking for an excuse or they want their way out of it. So parents seem just incredibly uncomfortable with making their kids accountable for anything or responsible. And they both excuse away stuff and, and get involved. And so that's the permissive part. The over-functioning part is really just too involved, um, you know, too involved, whether it's scheduling a play date, kind of, again, breaking those organic connections with inorganically kind of interfering and and trying rather than letting there's some failure or learning the lesson or coaching afterwards, just constantly jumping in, taking over. No different than a micromanager in work who, if they did the same behavior, it would be on a performance review plan with HR and probably get the lowest score possible from their team. Unfortunately, kids don't give feedback. But the two combinations of, of this permissive and over-functioning has just created a lot of problems. And I'm just surprised that people don't correlate this new mode of parenting with records amount of uh, kids not growing up by all the demonstrable uh, markers anxiety, depression. Otherwise, they're just not turning into adults. They're, they're kind of be like forever kids <laughs> being parented by their parents. So I, I want to double click on both sides of that, the permissive and the overfunctioning. So starting with the permissiveness, I can't help but think that when I hear about your example of it used to be the parent and the teacher would sit down to deliver the lesson to the kid, but now the parent and the kid are showing up to admonish the teacher <laughs> for failing them in some way. I mean, you've, and you have zero chance as a teacher under that scenario. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely are not getting paid enough to, to deal with that. <laughs> so the, the thing that I sense is part of the shift on that front is so much of parenting, and I think this is especially true in middle, upper middle, and upper class environments, there's this massive competitiveness and this fear of failure of your kids falling short of a certain example. Like everyone wants their kid to get into the best college, which means they have to get the best grades in high school, which means that they have to go to the right preschool. And yeah. everything has become this relentless competition for people. But oddly enough, we've been put in this situation where by attempting to help their kids win the competition, they're not really preparing them mentally to have the resilience to actually be in that competitive environment when they grow up. So what, what do you think is kind of the, the solution to that contradiction? 
Yeah, look, it's this achievement-oriented culture um, where people are less concerned about the character of their child, their their intrinsic qualities, <laughs> their resilience and stuff like that, and more about the bumper sticker they can put on their car. So it's, it's not about the kids. It's about the parents. Hopefully, some of the events of the last couple of months have made people think that maybe aspiring to our elite institutions is not the the pinnacle of success, uh, if we've seen some of the <laughs> rhetoric and message and activities that have come out of those institutions. But yes, that is part of the problem. It is taking away childhood and being a kid and getting dirty and skinning your knee. And it is also this culture of safetyism, which I do think is the real-time news and technology and hearing about. You know, we talked about this in different contexts, like some bad thing happened across the world in a village and you would never hear about it. And sometimes that's a good thing, right? Hearing about the one crazy thing that happens gets your probabilistic, you know, numbering all out of whack in terms of the reality of, of something happening. So there is this, this safetyism thing. But I think there's this also people overcompensate. So you had, you know, two working parents and maybe not enough love and not enough empathy. And so now you have lots of love and lots of empathy. And now you've lost the discipline and the autonomy and the independence that so many Gen X people, you know, had. Um, so it's no different than sort of a rebound date uh, where you tend to, you know, look for all the opposite qualities. So I, I, I think a lot of people are probably just totally op- overcompensating for some of the things from their own childhood, not recognizing the benefits that they had and, and over, over-indexing on, on the problems, but not replicating some of the benefits, particularly around independence. And, and this is where, look, the depression and the anxiety, eventually you will go into the real world and the real world is hard and the real world dynamics will come into play. And so the longer that you have been bubbled away from that and had the obstacles moved and told you were great and said you never made a mistake and had your mom or dad show up and advocate for you, again, we're just not failing when the stakes are low. Like forgetting your cleats, not signing up for a class, like missing a deadline, getting an F, like these are low stakes things that we could learn from. But in trying to cure from these things, we're then sending people into the real world that that is their expectation that everything is goes their way. And when it doesn't, they can't recover. And in some cases, it's a fatal <laughs> flaw uh, in the real world. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and, and this is a real effect of the over-functioning side of the coin in, in particular, I think. Because I think regardless of what you do, two things, if you think about uh, the, the book that I've been reading by Morgan Housel of like, same as ever, things that never change. Two things that I think will never change about life is that people will always value people who take accountability for and learn from their mistakes and who bounce back from failure effectively and come back stronger from it. And solve problems, right, as part of that. yeah. And and those abilities, I think you're right, that part of the reason why there's this epidemic of stress and anxiety and depression among more recent generations of people, some of it, I think, is just the mental damage that being on 
the internet 24 hours a day has, but some of it I think is also what you're talking about. It's like that lack of building those muscles to fail and to learn in a safe environment. I mean, one of the things that's, that's so valuable about college is that certainly compared to working a job in the real world, it's a safer environment to live in and to learn in and to grow in. And removing that from the equation really removes a massive benefit. Yeah. And look, we talk about this cleat example in the Friday Ford. Like constraints create creativity. So I forget my soccer cleats and no one's around for me to get them. Well, I'm going to have to figure something out. One, I'm going to have to borrow them. So I'm going to have to go around, talk to a lot of people, ask if they have cleats, kind of use my personal networking and social skills. Two, either I'm going to have to, you know, advocate to the coach, uh, you know, and and see if there's something I can do without the cleats or maybe participate on the side. And there'll be a little embarrassment. But I'm going to also kind of remember that and be like, I don't want to do that again. I, but there's some positives to come out of that. That That is the thing. We're trying to solve a negative, which is you don't have your cleats today. This is This is winning the battle and losing the war. There will be hundreds of days of needing cleats uh, or shoes. And most of the people I know in the workplace that it's a huge mistake they made, the bad hire or something like that, that makes them double down on interviewing, do everything different. People need those, those learnings and maybe having to hustle and borrow and get creative and figure out what you can do. I mean, these are all, these are all just basic life skills that uh, are not helped by um, bailing the, the kid out of the problem. And look, you should uh, not be emailing your kids' teachers. You should teach your kids how to self-advocate. One of my kids goes to a school where they are very clear that they do not want the parents involved, that if the kids fail, if they need extra help, if they want extra credit, they want to hear from the kids. And that's a private school environment, so they have a little more autonomy to do that. But I, but I love that about that environment. And I think, again, all these parents writing daily letters to the the teachers on behalf of their seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, you know, grade students, they're just doing them a huge disservice. And the thing is, I think it's a real slippery slope problem. Like I would imagine with rare exceptions, most parents probably aren't helping in these types of areas and thinking, and then one day my kid will be 35 and I'll still be calling to make doctor's appointments on their behalf. It's the type of thing where it's like, well, I'll help them this one time. They need it this time. And it's just, then it happens again and again and again. Uh, So pivoting a bit to the analogy that you used that I think is effective is comparing this like permissive and over-functioning parenting with a leadership style of micromanagement. And so what are some ways that leaders effectively avoid micromanaging and how can parents learn from those tactics of avoiding micromanagement? Yeah. And look, I don't have the data to prove this and we didn't have enough time to go into it in the Friday Ford, but, but I have a hard time believing that um, some of these parents operating in this micromanagement way then aren't bringing that into to work uh, or vice versa. So that it becomes sort of an endemic problem that um, they also become maybe the type of person that people don't want to work for. Um, but you know, there's there's an example I've heard over the years of what a, a good or great sales leader does versus not a good sales leader. And let's start with a not a good sales leader. Not a good sales leader gets on every call. As soon as the rep or the person they're training, managing starts to lose it, they jump in, they interfere, they make sure they don't lose the sale. 
Uh, and, you know, they, they kind of constantly swoop in and, and take over, which is not how you build a, a sales team. A great sales manager might listen on the call, listen to a recording later, let the rep or the person training actually lose the deal at a certain size. And there's a whole separate discussion of, yeah, obviously not a make the break the company deal, but but they let them lose and blow the deal. And then they afterwards go over it with them. So there's a difference between, I would say, look, a coach in a game can never take the ball. A coach can help a team prepare they can review the video afterwards. They can go through it. They can never step over that sideline and get into the game. So many parents and leaders would be better off, you know, doing that, which is, you know, talk about the expectations and the values and what you expect going into it. If it doesn't work, maybe review what went wrong and the cause and effect and talk about what you can do next time. Um, but let the person play the game and let them, again, and you know, same thing, let them experience that organic behavior and consequence without kind of interrupting uh, that process, which is really important for learning. So the best leaders I know, again, coach people, what do you need? How can I help you set them up for success? When things don't work out, they debrief, they review with them, they work on next time. They don't jump in and try to fix the problem in, in real time. Because again, they realize that that is winning the battle and losing the war. And I really like the example that you gave referencing that it can depend on the size of the deal if a good sales leader will let the person lose the deal. And it's actually, I think, a collision between a couple of Friday Forward concepts you've written about. One is the idea of thinking of mistakes or failures as above the waterline or below yeah. the waterline on a ship. And like for both leaders and for parents, thinking of if this person fails at this, is it like a fatal failure or is it something that might hurt for a minute and then they'll bounce back from? And so I think that that kind of collides with the idea of the fear of letting people have safe discomfort because we're in a case where people are basically treating every possible failure as a below the line failure, even if it's not. Yeah, and look, I, I probably if you're, it's a ten million dollar enterprise deal. You're not training, you know, a rep on that call. Um, you might be working with your enterprise salesperson, and eventually, again, they're going to have to to take those calls. So, yeah, it's it's knowing when when to jump in, when not to jump in, and and when to just let kind of that organic nature of something do that. But I think if you had to wrap into a bow, the main point there i think that great leaders and great parents stay out of the action <laughs> as much as possible and you know back to coaching you know they're they're working on the practice and the lessons before it's needed and then they're kind of coming back with a recap and revisiting and they're staying off the field of play so you talked about how being that sort of coach rather than intervening player it it fits well with your core values you know self-reliance you've talked about is a big value for you as someone who is both a parent and has led a lot of people was there a challenge for you to learn how to let either your kids or your team fail can you remember when that started to click for you um, probably it's also probably a little bit harder for everyone with kids because there's more of a, an emotional thing in it, but I always wanted my kids to, to lead. I, I can remember, and I've shared this somewhere, but a very distinctive, uh, memory. Um, so one of the things that, uh, I loved as my kids were younger was these ropes courses that got designed with this new special patented harness 
um, where everything was on a track and you can only take one side off at a time. So when you got done with one obstacle, if you put your extra harness on the new one, then the old one would release. So it became totally self-guided, but you couldn't hurt yourself. And when these things came out, I'm like, this is the best because you want people to be able to have that experience and feel unsafe. But as a parent, know that they are safe, you know, not that your kid's climbing a tree that they could fall out of and break their neck. And um, my son and I, my middle son and I, and he was probably nine or 10 years old, we were doing, I think we stepped up to the blue trail the first time and he got into this uh, really hard part of one of the exercises on the end and he got halfway through it and he completely panicked and was shaking and was kind of crying. And I had gotten to the end of it. I was five feet from him. And so for me, it was always the thing for me, my kids, where if it was difficult, but was safe, I loved it because I think that that's, that's where you learn the most. Um, there are definitely things that are difficult and unsafe. Like every time kids go driving, you know, you feel a sense of, of unsafeness. Um, but on this day, and, and so he was kind of calling out to me, asking me to get him. He was a little hysterical. I'm not going to lie. There were some other parents looking at me like, go get your kid. And, but for me, this was the perfect moment where, where he was fine. And so I talked him through it. I was like, bud, you're totally fine. Take a deep breath. You don't have to move. You can wait there. Let's like walk to the end, like get to the end. And, um, he got through it by himself. Was he happy with me? Probably not. <laughs> what do you wish? Just got him off the thing. Yes. But I thought it was like a perfect chance for him to look, we all go through panic and learn how to take a breath, see where he was. And I knew he could physically do it. He was just really tired. And, and there's a couple stories that then come out of that when you talk about the short term and the long term. So short term, we were back there a couple months later and he was, I'm, to his friends, I'm going to take you through this and flew through the course and had the confidence to do it. And was basically their guide taking all these other uh, kids through it. Um, and then I tied it to even a few months later, uh, one of my favorite Friday forwards about the opportunity we had to go to the Super Bowl together. And But he was 10 years old and he had to fly a four and a half hour flight, you know, for the first time um, by himself last minute to meet me there. And he was like, I'm all for it. And, and I'm convinced that it was things like that where he had to overcome some difficulty and develop his mental capacity that made him comfortable and want to do that. And if he couldn't have taken that four hour flight by himself, he would have missed one of the best uh, moments of his life. So that was a perfect example. Again, if you had taken a poll of all of the other parents there in the air with me, they would have been like bad parent, go get your kid. But I just, I thought it was the perfect opportunity for him to figure out how to get through it. And by the way, readers of one of the most recent Friday Forwards will note, Max, just as a first-time goalie, was part of a state finalist soccer team, which that's something that you can really only do if you're mentally tough and if you can handle pressure. Like that's, That speaks to how this can germinate into something valuable. Yeah, I think, I think it either becomes a vicious cycle or, <laughs> or a vicarious cycle. And so... Sort of to to zoom out before we get to the quote of the week, because as we've said, there's often reactions to things like this. In a lot of cases, there are like boomers who were raised by parents who are, were a little more emotionally unavailable or like Gen Xers who were kind of more of the latchkey kids. They went on to become the parents who parent in this kind of overbearing yeah. way. Do you think that in the future there is a potential to swing away from this type of overfunctioning, or do you think that it is only going to get more intense from here? 
What do you think the future looks like? I think it could be a little bit of both. Again, I think this the, the kids who were micromanaged and struggled and followed and felt like they had no privacy, like they might do the opposite and not track their kids and not do that stuff and not advocate. And they might get underly involved, right? It's like, so I could see it potentially uh, the pendulum maybe switching back uh, a little too hard there. But I do think that some of this is going to have to change and we're going to have to move out of it. Yeah, curious to see where it goes from here. So the quote of the week is from Tim Elmore, and it is, we must prepare children for the path instead of the path for children. What drew you to this quote? Yeah, I first heard this quote from uh, Eric Kapitulik, uh, who's been on the podcast a few times and uh, runs a great uh, leadership development uh, program, ironically called The Program. So uh, like with any quotes, I thought it was Eric's the first time I heard it, but then I <laughs> learned he didn't say I was a little more famous. Um, but I love it because I think it, it exemplifies a lot of where we are. Again, what we were saying before, your, your goal is to to coach and talk through scenarios. And what are you going to do when you go to that party? And what are you going to do when this happens? And then, you know, you're not there for those things. Um, rather than trying to move everything around or make it easier or create this false sense of, uh, life really, um, for your kids, um, by trying to move all those obstacles out of the way. You mentioned helicopter parenting before a friend of mine was once my advisor who, who's now an administrator at a school said that actually we're on from helicopter parenting to snowplow parenting because helicopter parenting applies this hovering and snowplow is just kind of let's move everything, um, out of the way. But again, I, you know, if the path is prickly, the, the, you know, teach your kids how to wear a pair of shoes to go on the path, not to try to figure out how to remove all the, the prickles in the world. Yeah, and maybe instead of snow plow parenting, to use your coach metaphor, we need sideline parenting. Yeah, I, I, we, look, we'd be in a good place if that, uh, if that became the new default, uh, if we were calling people sideline parents. Fair enough. So, want to take us out? Sure. Thank you for listening to Weekend Conversations. If you want to check out the posts we discussed today, go to robertglazer.substack.com and look for Final Frontier. Look out for future editions of Weekend Conversations, which will be in your feed on Saturday mornings. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast player, make sure to do that so that you get new episodes delivered directly to your app. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, 
and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.